You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring our March 2023 issue of JAANP. In this podcast, we'll feature several highlights from our March issue of the Journal. And we're going to start with the systematic review, and it's by Mia Teresa Bianchi. And it's titled, The Effects of High-Flow Oxygen Therapy on Mortality in COVID-19. High-flow oxygen therapy has been successful in treating acute hypoxic respiratory failure and acute respiratory distress syndrome. Successful treatment with non-invasive ventilation and avoidance of mechanical ventilation has been associated with decreased mortality and positive patient outcomes. It's unclear whether the evidence supports use of high-flow oxygen therapy to treat coronavirus disease 2019-induced acute hypoxic respiratory failure and acute respiratory distress syndrome. So the objectives were to determine whether the use of high-flow oxygen therapy decreases the need for intubation or decreases mortality compared to mechanical ventilation in these patients. A literature review was conducted using CINAHL, Embase, PubMed, and Scopus bibliographic databases, 10 studies comparing high-flow oxygen therapy and mechanical ventilation in COVID-19 respiratory failure met the inclusion criteria. The results were that nine studies found a statistically significant reduction in the need for intubation. Eight studies found significantly decreased mortality in patients who received high-flow oxygen therapy. The study design and methodologies limited the findings. So based on the available evidence, the use of high-flow oxygen therapy positively impacted mortality and incidence and the need for intubation and mechanical ventilation. Further research does need to be conducted before high-flow oxygen therapy is adopted as the standard of care. Nurse practitioners should be informed regarding the various respiratory support modalities and evaluate risk versus benefit when caring for patients with COVID-19-induced acute hypoxic respiratory failure and respiratory distress syndrome. Our next feature this month is a quantitative research study by Anita Thapa and Jane Champion. It's titled, Identification of Provider and Patient Characteristics Associated with Antibiotic Prescription in the Treatment of Acute Sinusitis. Inappropriate antibiotic use contributes to the development of antibiotic resistance. Sinusitis is the fifth most common diagnosis responsible for antibiotic use. And appropriate antibiotic prescribing for acute sinusitis treatment is crucial to mitigate antibiotic resistance threats. So the purpose of this study was to identify patient and provider characteristics associated with antibiotic prescription and to assess provider adherence to antibiotic prescribing guidelines. Their methods were a retrospective chart review, including acute sinusitis cases diagnosed over a 12-month period at two express care clinics in the southwestern United States. Results showed that a majority of cases received antibiotic prescriptions. Sociodemographic characteristics significantly associated with antibiotic prescription included race, ethnicity, insurance type, and smoking status. Patient-reported nature of symptoms, such as sinus tenderness and erythema or edema, were also significantly associated with antibiotic prescription. Antibiotic prescription and watchful waiting for acute sinusitis treatment were significantly associated with the type of provider. The authors concluded that a gap exists between current guidelines and clinical practice for acute sinusitis treatment in outpatient settings, 
outpatient antimicrobial stewardship programs for acute sinusitis treatment with a focus on educational interventions for providers may reduce antibiotic overprescribing for acute sinusitis. Our next feature is a quantitative research study, and it's by Christopher Jackson, Paula McCauley, Joanne Connick-McMahon, and Cyrus Mirza. It's titled Contemporary Adult Gerontology Acute Care Nurse Practitioner Practice. Findings from the 2020 American Association of Critical Care Nurses AGACNP Practice Analysis Survey. Yes, so this article synopsis contains a lot of abbreviations and acronyms, so bear with me. Here's a summary of this study. National standards for nurse practitioner licensure require certification programs and practice analyses to ensure that the certified nurse practitioner possesses the necessary knowledge for entry-level practice. The practice analysis for the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Certification Corporation, or AACN CertCorp, Adult Gerontology Acute Care Nurse Practitioner Credential, is performed every five years by the AACN Certification Corporation. So the AACN CertCorp conducted a practice analysis to confirm that current adult GERO acute care nurse practitioner practice is reflected in the test plan for the ACNPC credential, acute care nurse practitioner certified credential. And the exam should be congruent with the 2008 consensus model guidelines as well. So the authors describe findings from the 2020 AACN CertCorp practice analysis and changes in the adult GERO acute care nurse practitioner practice and academic preparation based on the survey data. So in 2020, the AACN CertCorp volunteer subject matter experts developed a survey of practice activities and competencies relevant to adult GERO acute care nurse practitioner practice. Patient care activities and competencies were rated by the adult GERO acute care nurse practitioner respondents for criticality and frequency. The AACN subject matter experts reviewed criticality and frequency ratings to determine the patient care problems, skills and procedures, and competencies to include in the updated AACN CertCorp Adult Acute Care Nurse Practitioner Certified Test Plan. The 2020 Adult GERO Acute Care Nurse Practitioner Practice Analysis Survey and subsequent review resulted in the retention of 33 skills and procedures, 165 patient care problems, and all national competencies in the final Acute Care Nurse Practitioner Certified Test Plan. So in conclusion, the 2020 AACN CertCorp practice analysis survey for these specialists describes possible changes in adult GERO acute care nurse practitioner practice and academic preparation. These changes have occurred since the 2016 survey. Next, I'd like to mention a brief report that we're publishing this month. It's titled Hospital at Home, A Change in the Course of Care, and it's by Garrett Gaylord and Ian Rusinoff. Acute care services in the United States are largely delivered in the hospital setting. Since the onset of the pandemic, acute care services in the hospital have become overwhelmed. An elderly population with comorbidities and lack of hospital capacity is leading to a hospital without walls type of approach to acute care. Hospital at Home, or HAH, is a paradigm shift in the standard way to administer acute care. 
model development coupled with innovations in telehealth and remote patient monitoring has led to hospital at home being considered a viable alternative to admitting patients to the hospital. Robust evidence suggests that hospital at home interventions are now a option for providers to assess, treat, and monitor their patients. Outcomes equivalent to inpatient stays with no mortality difference makes this model a viable option for patient care outside of the hospital. An overall cost reduction compared with an inpatient stay may be an economically viable option for overwhelmed hospital systems looking to care for their surrounding population. So in this brief, the authors review some of the existing evidence and the growth of the hospital at home concept and what it means for members of the interdisciplinary care team. So please do also take a look at that brief report. And now you'll hear a short interview with one of the authors of our CE feature this month. Our guest today is Dr. Pam DeGuzman. She's an associate professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing and a nurse scientist at UVA Health. She and her colleagues contributed our CE feature this month, Extending Healthcare Access via Telemedicine in Public Libraries. The authors point out that there are few libraries currently that collaborate with healthcare providers to offer access to telehealth, despite the potential for telemedicine and public libraries to expand healthcare access, especially to those living a long distance from care and in broadband poor areas. They decided to explore healthcare providers' perspectives on telemedicine and public libraries as a method of improving equitable access to care for populations lacking the ability to connect to telemedicine from home. They used a two-phase explanatory sequential mixed methods design with both quantitative and qualitative components, including interviews, and they analyzed the interviews for themes. 36 nurse practitioners and 13 physicians participated, and 12 nurse practitioners were interviewed. The nurse practitioners were overwhelmingly supportive of telemedicine in public libraries, describing how connecting at-risk populations to a video visit allowed for a more thorough and accurate assessment than a phone call. While several nurse practitioners were concerned with privacy, others considered a library to be more private than the home. Interviews revealed how chronic illness management may be the ideal visit type for public library-based medicine. The authors concluded that given the importance of expanding access sites for telemedicine, nurse practitioners should consider partnering with libraries in their catchment areas where broadband access is sparse and patients must travel long distances to get care. This could be an important approach toward reducing health disparities in populations who live long distances from care and do not have home-based internet access. Pam, welcome to the podcast. Pam, thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here and talk about, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Yes, and we do want to hear more about telehealth in general, so I'd love to hear how your interest in telemedicine got started. So I have a program of research in rural health disparities, and I primarily for a long time worked with the cancer survivor population. As you mentioned, I'm at the University of Virginia, and we have a pretty big rural catchment area. We serve about half the state. It's it's very rural, and we have patients that come in from sometimes five, six hours away to get their treatment. And what happens is when they go home, they lose a lot of the connection that you that you get when when you've been in active treatment, a lot of those supportive care resources, in particular for the population I was working with, which is head and neck cancer survivors. So in uh, response to that, I developed an intervention, a nurse-led uh, distress screening assessment and referral intervention so that we could contact rural survivors when they were done with active treatment after they'd adjusted to the new normal 
And UVA has one of the oldest telemedicine centers in the country. So we thought this is great. We can do this over telemedicine. The whole idea is to minimize their burden of having to come back in for something where um, you know they can just as easily get those services over telemedicine. And we knew the telemedicine, or I should say we suspected the telemedicine aspect was critical because so much of the assessment is visual, you know, versus doing it over the phone, which, by the way, is something that we also saw in this study. So anyway, uh, fast forward, we did the intervention. We had iPads that we would send to people. And uh, if they didn't have, you know, a broadband signal or equipment, and what we found pretty quickly was that if people did not have telemedicine in their home, just sending the equipment that even if it had the signal, you know, it had a, a mobile signal or whatever, did not work. Because if people didn't have regular use, or if they didn't typically use the internet, they didn't know how to do it. And it was actually creating more distress for them to try to figure that out. In an intervention, we were trying to reduce distress so a member of our research team mentioned at the time, you know, I wonder about libraries because libraries have librarians and they have internet. And so I thought, huh, that's interesting. Well, this was all pre-COVID. And so we actually started walking down that path of exploring in Virginia, you know, do libraries even have the resources to do this? And we did a, a little study with uh, Virginia libraries and found not only did they have equipment, space, broadband signal, and, and people that were available to help, but there was no difference between urban and rural libraries, which was the other question that we had. Because to do this successfully, you have to have these things in rural libraries. And if you've ever been to a rural library, some of them are just a, a room or just a tiny little space with, with just nothing else. But we were really pleased that we confirmed at least that, you know, most of them had this and rural libraries as well did. Then COVID hit and all of a sudden everybody, <laughs> the rest of the world realized the difficulty that rural populations were having, mostly for um, connecting to school, but also, you know, people that were in healthcare were realizing they couldn't connect their rural populations with telehealth when everything closed down. And so I took advantage of that and wrote a research agenda for telemedicine and public libraries because there was absolutely nothing out there at that time and really just began to step through that research agenda myself. This paper is uh, was intended to explore what the barriers were and, and potential facilitators of it from the standpoint of the providers. Because one of the things we realized um, in our research early on was if the providers were not on board, this was not gonna work that uh, we did a, a, a really, um, probably the first implementation study of the earliest adopters of telemedicine in libraries. And we found that the ones that were really successful were those that partnered with providers. So I thought, well, we need to see what providers think about this. That's great. Wow. What an exciting area and so creative to find that kind of a solution. It does sound like you're dealing with an awful lot of rural clientele and potential patients that uh, have some pretty extreme needs. And we sit, you know, in our urban centers, assuming that everybody has access to the same resources that we do, don't we? And that's just absolutely not true at all. Now, I want you to talk a little bit more about the methodology that you use, because I know readers always like to hear kind of the nitty gritty about stuff like that. So how did you choose that particular study design that you did? You mentioned the quantitative and qualitative, and then also how did you access the providers to talk to them? 
That's a great question. And a lot of thought went into this. So as I'm sure your readers know, when you do, um, when you're starting something and you don't really know anything about it, you typically start with qualitative research. But we wanted to talk to providers and we all know how busy providers are. And it's really hard to get them to sign on to talking to you for a half an hour about something, even if it's something they're very passionate about. So we thought, well, we can do this in a mixed methods way so that we can um, and sequentially, which is what we did, which was to start with a quantitative survey and just do a five minute survey that we thought, okay, we can convince some people to fill out our quantitative survey. And again, as you know, it's even hard sometimes to get providers to do a quick five minute survey. We thought if we get enough of those and then we put in a question at the bottom saying, you know, please let us know if you'd be interested in being interviewed, then we could really explore some of those themes that we were seeing from the quantitative the, the quantitative piece. And so that's that's essentially what we did. The other piece was really trying to recruit, uh, which we cast as wide a net as possible. Um, I was very fortunate on this research to partner with uh, Dr. Becky Compton, who is a family medicine nurse practitioner at the University of Virginia. And she's a past president of the Virginia Council for Nurse Practitioners and extremely involved, not only with nurse practitioners, but she's with our physicians group at the University of Virginia. So really well-respected, very well-known. And she really told us, here's all the different places we can go. And she helped facilitate those connections so that we could recruit through a number of different um, venues in Virginia through the internet. But also we cast a, a wide net through social media as well, because we weren't just limited to Virginia. And we asked people, please share this as much as you can. And uh, we were able to recruit pretty successfully through those means, but it's tough. <laughs> it's yes. And those are some great tips. Yeah. You, you've accessed a person who is a uh, knowledgeable and could really help facilitate some of that stuff. And then you also thought about what are other ways you've got to be really creative about it and think, how can I make this work? Everybody who's tried to do anything in a practical clinically based setting knows some of those challenges and you've got to really put some thought into it. And who do I know that could help me get this done? And that's exactly what you did. I also noticed that in your conclusion, you mentioned that nurse practitioners should consider partnering with the libraries. And you know so much more about this than just about anybody. I mean, how how can nurse practitioners get started with that? And what kind of tips can you give people that think, oh, maybe I need to explore this a little bit more because I do deal with some rural people here. I'm thinking about some of my friends in North Florida. We have some very rural areas in North Florida. Every state has those areas, right? What tips can you give nurse practitioners to get started in uh, exploring this if they want to partner with libraries? So probably the first thing that I would suggest is to figure out where your patients are coming from, who could benefit from this. People who typically, you know, that would benefit would live at a long distance and not have access to home-based broadband, or maybe they have something, but it's not a sufficient signal. A lot of people, for example, don't realize this doesn't work over a satellite signal because of the time delay. So even if somebody has that and can maybe stream a movie in their home, it doesn't mean they can do a telemedicine visit. So understanding which areas are um, not broadband rich and which um, you know patients are really traveling a long distance. And keep in mind that people having trouble traveling isn't necessarily somebody that's two hours away. It could be somebody 30 minutes away 
but they just have transportation difficulties. Mm -hmm. And some of them will have an easier time getting a ride to a library than getting into, you know, a major medical center or even um, into any small urban area. So once they identify that, I would figure out what libraries are in their region. And you can do that a lot of different ways, even just through a quick internet search. The other thing that a lot of um, nurse practitioners may not realize is this is catching on a lot around the country. Libraries want to do this work in a lot of cases. I won't say 100% because not everybody wants to do it. And libraries are very independent. And so oftentimes you're dealing with one independent library or in like where I live, it's a, a region that has 10 uh, libraries that are all connected. But I would start with reaching out to those individuals and seeing if they would even be open to it. And if they are, there's a lot of resources that are emerging where they can help. For example, um, I'm actually partnering with the Indiana Rural Health Association, and we're developing a needs assessment for telemedicine in libraries. We hope to have that out in the next six months or so, um, where libraries, providers can really step through, okay, what are all the things we need to have to get this into place and then figure out what resources they may be missing. And the big piece of it, of course, is are there um, resources that are going to cost money for us to do? But the critical first step is finding that partnership with the library. And I um, would be surprised if people didn't find a lot of the libraries that serve these communities to be very receptive because librarians are a huge um, asset to their communities. They're usually very involved in their communities. You know, they, they don't do that job for, for money. They do it really for love. In fact, some librarians are volunteers um, and they still are willing to just put in all this extra effort to make sure that their community is, is getting what they need. That's great. And from what you're saying, it sounds like some of those librarians or a lot of them may already be aware of this as a potential use of their library through their associations and stuff, they may be aware that this is coming. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I know Hawaii, the Hawaiian State Library is doing this. Obviously, they have a lot of rural areas, a lot of difficulty getting people connected from other areas off of the main island. Wyoming has a big program where they're doing this. Um, Delaware has a program. There's several programs in Texas. I mean, really, probably about half the states in the country have a, programs where they're either existing or in the process of building them somewhere in the state. Well, that is great to hear, Pam. I'm happy to hear that there's already people that are getting more health care. And obviously, as the champions of patient access to care and primary care, nurse practitioners can play a big role in helping this evolve even more so that it's more and more convenient for people to get health care, regardless of where they live. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. You're welcome. This was great. It was really fun to talk to you about this. And thanks to all of our listeners and be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.